This is the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. My name is Sarah Jefford and I'm a surrogate and a surrogacy lawyer. In this episode, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Sean and Jeremy, who are uh, gay dads in Melbourne and recently became dads to baby Elio through surrogacy with a Queensland couple. I actually think they really speak well for themselves, so I'm going to hand straight over to them and tell you that this is a really lovely episode and is worth following through all the way to the end. I'm going to hand over now to Sean and Jeremy. Hi, we're Jeremy and Sean, um, and we are now dads. Um, We've just had our son Elio through surrogacy, and he's four and a half months now. Congratulations, and he is very cute, I can attest to that. How's fatherhood treating you? It's going well. It's going really well, yeah. We, we were just saying before, we've been uh, very lucky to be, to be blessed with a little, a little baby that is very, very kind to us and very chill and quite easy to, to be parents to at the moment. So He's a very laughy kid, which is yeah. very awesome. That's he spends cool. most of his days sort of giggling and smiling and, yeah, there's not a lot of crying or, or kind of um, restless nights or anything like that. He's sleeping well. He's fun to be around. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Very he really cool. like that. So tell me, how did you both come to surrogacy? Um, well, we've probably been going for, what, about four years, four and a bit years now, I think. I think we first went to our very first kind of information session or first sort of really actively started looking pretty much about four and a half years ago. Um, We started dating a few years before that and pretty quickly kind of both discussed the fact that we were both really keen to become parents eventually. I'm a little bit older than Jeremy. I'm eight years older. Uh, so I probably had a bit more of a time uh, pressure on me, or in my mind anyway. I kind of, you know, didn't want to leave it too much later. And, and Jem was kind of like, yeah, it'll happen down the track. Um, and then eventually I think we just kind of... Sean twisted my arm. <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I think we just kind of, I kind of said like, look, I kind of need to know if this is an actual... Thing that we're going to head towards and Jeremy is kind of like yeah absolutely I just probably don't really want a, a kid for a, a year or two <laughs> we were like oh it's going to take us about three or four to get there so we should be starting now yeah um, and then from there we kind of it was a couple of months and then we went to a IVF clinic open day I think it was uh, oh, one of the new clinics mm-hmm. in Melbourne have just started a same-sex arm called Rainbow Rainbow Fertility. Fertility. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so we went, Sean saw an open day for that on Facebook and we went along and started learning about it all. (laughs) Yeah, we kind of looked at a a bunch of options to to begin with, kind of looking at uh, international surrogacy through the States, um, through commercial surrogacy or... At that time, I'm pretty sure Thailand was still open, but maybe it did just closed off and there was um, Cambodia kind of shift to Cambodia. And we, we actually had a sort of Southeast Asian holiday planned where we went through sort of Thailand and Cambodia and Laos and um, Vietnam and a few other places kind of around that time. And I think spending some time in those countries 
both of us kind of just didn't didn't feel comfortable that there was the safety and security for uh, any potential surrogate in, in that in that environment so we kind of ruled that out pretty quickly just by spending some time in these countries um so then when we got back we kind of were really looking at um yeah the states or canada or or a local journey and i think both of us kind of had a preference to do it with someone that we could be quite close with during the process and, and kind of be a bit more hands-on um which is why we sort of started looking at, at at Australian-based surrogacy or local surrogacy. Were you considering options for finding an egg donor at the same time or was that a different discussion? That came a bit later. So I think originally we were um, we've, we're discussing uh, adoption and then that was like a, probably a day discussion that just turned off very quickly um, just because it's very close to impossible in Australia. And then we talked about international surrogacy, um, which, you know, was a, a few few weeks to a month process. And then we went overseas and, um, yeah, it wasn't until we started really uh, getting into the logistics of doing an Australian journey that we really kind of started looking at who was going to be an egg donor for us. And Yeah, yeah we'd kind of... We'd kind of spoken about people in our lives and it wasn't something that there was anybody that we had in that existing in our lives that we'd kind of always thought like, oh, that could be a potential in terms of, of being an egg donor or um, I've got a sister and Jen's got a brother, uh, but my sister is a little bit older and, and wouldn't, um, I don't think that would work. Uh, and it was something, so we were kind of looking at unknown donors and chatting to a few people and then in amongst that sort of um, my best friend or our very close friend, but particularly my best friend, she kind of just said like, oh, we've never had that discussion. Like we've never had a discussion on what it would look like if I donated, donated my eggs to you. And we hadn't even had, you know, quite often as, as a gay man, and with female best friends, sometimes, you know, over a few cocktails, someone might offer to carry a baby or donate eggs or even in a kind of not 100% serious way, but it's just something that we'd never discussed with, with Steph before. And so we just were like, let's have a discussion and see what that might look like. Um, and then as we sort of spoke about it a lot more, it became a lot more clear that it's something that could really work for, for both of us, both Steph and her partner, Toby, and us. Mm. Um, and then as we kind of looked into it more seriously, it just became, yeah, it's, we're really lucky to have someone in our lives like Steph, who is, she's going to be just this amazing auntie that Elio has in, her, in his life for the rest of his life. And he's going to know kind of where he comes from and what she did to help us kind of complete our family and things. And I just love, I really love that she's going to be a part of that family forever. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's such a great thing that Elio can know, I guess, a part, that part of his story as well. Like, yeah, it's yeah. very important to us. So when it came to finding a surrogate, what were you doing to find one here in Australia? I think the most, uh, you know, we kind of went to a catch up or two and started kind of meeting people within the community. 
um, the surrogacy community and obviously the Australian surrogacy community's um, Facebook page. Um, so chatting to a few people on, on there and just sort of, at first, just sort of getting to know people. And, and we met a few um, surrogates who had been surrogates, surrogates previously and, and ones who had already kind of connected with IPs and were sort of at different stages in their journeys. Um, I'm going to keep using the word journey even though I hate it, but it's just the easiest way. Um, but yeah, so it was kind of good to see and meet people that had were at different levels, but it also had just had wildly different experiences as well and just kind of get a bit of an understanding of, of how it worked from a surrogate's perspective as well. Um, and I, I guess that's probably, we, we kind of connected relatively early on with the surrogate to begin with. And that was based largely around uh, a kind of friendship, I guess, first and foremost, and, and a, a bit of a sort of experience or knowledge exchange between the two of us. Uh, she was based in Adelaide, we're based in Victoria. And so at first we were kind of like, you know, this is definitely not gonna work, but let's be friends and let's kind of talk to each other about what we're both going through as IPs and then as a surrogate as well. And that kind of uh, friendship developed quite naturally in that way. Uh, and again, then uh, a few months of that had gone by and then it was something that we um, had kind of then kind of started discussing like, well, maybe we could work together and maybe we could team up. What would that look like? Um, and that's kind of how, how we kind of, I guess, that's what led into our sort of first, I guess, not failed journey, but our first false, our false start, I guess you could call it. Yeah. So tell me about that one. So she was in Adelaide and you're in Melbourne. What was it about the journey that was a false start? Yeah, so we, 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 made, um, we made a trip to Adelaide and she came out here, I think, once or twice. Um, and we kind of had started the process and we got along really well and we got along with her and her husband and she's got two, two small children and we love meeting them and visiting, visiting them uh, in Adelaide. And I think because we'd had such, um, we spoke about a lot leading into any kind of offer or agreement to kind of start start a sort of surrogacy process together. We'd spoken a lot about it, every in and out possible about what we were thinking about the process because we hadn't we hadn't really at that point thought, uh, you know, we weren't sitting there thinking that she could be our surrogate and she wasn't thinking we could be her IPs. So we were kind of just chat, 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 chatting away about everything. Um, so we had a lot of kind of back history, I guess, uh, leading into that. Um, and I think once we, we started looking at the process and the logistics of, of an interstate um, surrogacy process, particularly being based in Victoria, uh, there are a few things around uh, the logistics of counselling and having to do certain things in person, and it would mean that there would be a lot of a lot of travel for her to be travelling interstate, which is, uh, as you can imagine, quite hard if you're a, you know a working mum of two small children to be able to kind of travel back and forth interstate for things like um, counselling appointments and mm -hmm. psychology appointments and then medical appointments and and all of all of that kind of thing. I think also 
that did sort of coincide a little bit with, I guess, a bit of a shift in in our friend in our relationship. Um, and I kind of I'll kind of use me. Uh, I say I. I do mean Jeremy and I, but. I was kind of the one that had established a friendship with her leading into this process. And so I guess I felt um, a little bit more of the responsibility, I guess, for that relationship. Uh, but there were, there started to be a few things that not sort of um, deal breakers or red flags or anything, but there was a bit of discrepancy between how we viewed a few things as well at the same time as those logistics came up. Um, which was a bit of a, a kind of, I guess, a wake-up call. Um, they, were, they were things that we'd kind of discussed before, but I think when it's theoretical, it can be a lot different to when you're actually in, in the thick of it. Did you ever feel like there's not enough surrogates to go around and we've had an offer, so we just have to take the offer, even if, like you say, logistics were going to work against you? Did you ever feel like there was a lot of pressure to keep your surrogate rather than saying, actually, maybe this isn't going to work and we need to say no? Um, I think it was more fear than pressure. There was a little bit of fear of, of kind of, I guess, you know, we did kind of have a few discussions of being like, you know, can we work around this? Can we be a bit... Um, you know, can we be flexible with around certain things? Can we make this work? Because there was that fear that, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to find another surrogate um, if we were to, to kind of not continue. Um, I think at the sort of end of it, though, as well, we've both, we, Gem and I have both been pretty adamant about doing with this with somebody who that we, that we can have a relationship with. We want this to be a relationship that, lasts a lifetime um, for Elio's sake as well as for our sake um, and it was just something that you know we eventually got to that point of being like yeah we maybe could have we maybe could have made it work to have the result of having a child but I don't think it would have been what either side actually wanted out of the experience which I think is when we kind of came to that conclusion was when we were kind of like, all right, I think we need to maybe, maybe call this and step back a little bit and, and kind of do, do what's best for everybody involved rather than doing what's going to get us an outcome, if that makes sense. Hmm. I think that makes perfect sense. And it says a lot about your integrity. I think that you were able to do that. So tell me what happened next? Cause you eventually did find a surrogate um, later on. Yeah, it was, it was pretty, um, it was quite difficult. We were both quite upset, obviously, about how, about walking away from that. And I know that um, uh, the, the surrogate that we kind of um, connected with was, was equally as upset by the sort of ending of our journey. So I think we both kind of were like, all right, maybe we, we just take a little bit of a break. Um, and just kind of recoup a little bit. And I think it was, it was fairly soon after one of my um, best friends up in Brisbane was, was chatting to her friends who we kind of, I think we'd met maybe only once or we, we knew of them um, but didn't really have a relationship with them. Uh, and Nicole, who is uh, our surrogate, who carried Elio, she, she was just chatting to my friend Rachel and was complaining about her period actually. 
and Rachel just jokingly said like, oh, you should just get pregnant and then you don't have to deal with your period for a year or so. And um, Nicole was like, oh, Nicole's got a grown daughter. Uh, and uh, she was just like, oh, that's that gravy boat has sailed. That's not going to happen. Uh, I don't definitely don't want another kid. And Rachel just offhandedly said like, oh, well, I've got some mates who are looking for someone to carry a kid for them if you want to do that. As you do. <laughs> yeah, Rachel's that kind of person. Um, but then, and Nicole laughed it off and that was kind of the end of the conversation and they were talking about other things. And then a few days later, Nicole called Rachel and just said, look, I don't know if you know about this, but um, Jane, so uh, Nicole's wife, Jane, uh, Nicole and Jane had actually discussed being a surrogate themselves. Uh, so they were like, you know, do you think Sean and Jeremy would be keen to have a chat to us about this properly? And Rachel was like, yeah, absolutely. So Rachel kind of teed it up and, and we kind of started chatting to them and went up and met them. And it kind of, we, I think all four of us kind of knew quite quickly uh, it's not to say the process went quite quickly, but I think as soon as we kind of met them, it it just kind of clicked. You know, it it was it was great to meet uh, a surrogate who was in a same sex relationship, who understood the dynamics of same sex relationships because it, it 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 can differ a little bit from hetero relationships. Um, and also, both Nicole and Jane were just so one hundred percent wholeheartedly in it. Uh, equally as well so it wasn't something that Nicole was kind of wanting to do and Jane was just there being supportive like they are such a strong team and it kind of felt great because it kind of mimicked I guess me and Jem in a way like I, I've always felt that Jeremy and I have approached this as a pretty solid unit and meeting them and have, seeing them have that same kind of approach to it was was really great. Um, it was really I, I think one of the things that really struck me when I met Nicole and Jane was just the love that they have for each other and they are quite obviously you know they've been through a lot together and you can tell that they're they're the type of people that you know exactly what you get with them they're very they always say they, they say it themselves they they call a spade a spade and um you know, they can be quite blunt in ways, but it's like never a bad thing. It's always, it's just, it's very nice. And yeah, I think it, the, the love that they have for each other is just something that we walked away and we yeah, both smiled about quite a lot. <laughs> That's lovely. So even though uh, I guess logistics was still an issue, but this time from Queensland, how did you as a team manage that in terms of following through the Victorian process to get to the patient review panel and having a surrogate and her partner up in Queensland? I think, yeah, I think, I guess the biggest difference is that both, so Nicole and Jane both have a child each from previous, um, before they'd met and before they married, uh, but both, uh, Nicole and Jane's children are, are grown um, so they weren't living at home and they weren't Nicole and Jane weren't caring for children uh, they were both working but relatively flexible with work in terms of having to come down to Victoria for, for things um, 
Nicole hates the cold, so she hated coming down here for, <laughs> to Melbourne in the middle of winter for, for counselling and things. But it was it was a little bit easier logistically in terms of the in terms of that. So it's a little bit more work in terms of managing schedules and flights and and that kind of thing, particularly when you're dealing um, with the requirements of PRP, which can can be a little bit tricky and a quite often appointments are kind of a little bit last minute with certain things. And um, so we were pretty flexible with that stuff. Uh, we got got through all of our kind of prerequisites and dotted all our I's and crossed our T's and things. Um, we found the PRP process not great, <laughs> as most people, I think, you know, it's, it's not the best process in the world. Um, there was a lot of, we found that, I guess, sort of making friends in the community was great because there, was, there were people who had kind of trodden the path before us and quite recently, quite close to us as well, so that we got a lot of tips on things to watch out for and things to make sure you include and, and that kind of thing, which was amazing. But even still, there was a number of little things that, you know, there's a lot of talk of, the PRP has preferences for this or they might like to see that. And when you're dealing with something like surrogacy and going through this process, it was really frustrating to be kind of told uh, they might be looking for something like this or they may have a preference to see you do this X, Y, and Z when it should, when it should be a kind of hard line if, if you've done something that's, that's the requirement. Um, so I found that personally pretty frustrating. Uh, I work for the state government as well, so I'm pretty across sort of uh, legislation and, and sort of those kind of things. And, yeah, it was just doing my head in a little bit. Um, How did you, you find the counselling process? If I'm, I'm interested, I guess, because people ask about what's, what does the counselling involve? For two couples that um, have met, I guess, for the purpose of surrogacy, what was counselling like for all of you in terms of building a relationship and preparing you for the journey ahead? Uh, the counselling, it was good to raise all the issues that we needed to discuss to prepare us for surrogacy. Um, I think a lot of it was we discussed outside of the counselling anyway. Um, so for us, it kind of felt like checking boxes. Um, I could see, I think it is a very necessary part of the process. Um, for for those reasons but um i don't know it it kind of felt like we were just treading water by the end of uh the counseling um because we discussed yeah. everything and <laughs> and uh our counselor wanted to uh i guess rehash it all and just try and bring up stuff and i mean that you know, issues that we'd already discussed previously. <laughs> um, there was nothing to them, but she just wanted to check in on it and um, I guess see that it was consistent, I guess. But, yeah, it was... Did you find, did you find it a value added in terms of the relationship or was it, like you say, you've, you've already done all the prep yourselves, you didn't really need it? I think it was good to provide a bit of structure around, even though we'd done done a lot of the prep and had a lot of the discussions before we kind of even started the counselling. Mm. It's kind of good to have a, a kind of structured 
approach to to kind of talking through things and quite often you know if you're you're discussing these huge things over over a drink over a beer or over dinner you know you kind of you get caught up in the conversation sometimes and then afterwards you think oh i didn't i didn't say exactly what i wanted to say about that one thing so i think counseling did provide that space to go i know we've already discussed this but maybe i could now that i've thought about it i could sort of say it a little bit more eloquently or i've i've thought about it and it's shifted slightly and so i definitely think it's got a great invaluable purpose um but like jen said by the end it did feel a lot like treading water and i think going through the clinic clinic system i guess so with an ivf clinic um i don't really want to rag on the counselor per se but it felt quite surface a lot of the time which yeah is good to kind of provide that jumping off point but i think if there were any issues i don't think it would have gone as in-depth as to have been able to kind of help resolve them um but mm, i totally yeah. agree with that yeah so i think it, it's good to have that jumping off point and i think it is really really necessary and i think spreading we had it spread out quite a bit as well I think that was quite good having the kind of chunks of time in between sessions to kind of think about things a little bit more or talk about them in a little bit more detail. Yeah. For a long distance relationship, how, how do you guys maintain contact? Is it all over Skype or phone calls or just text messages? A lot of phone calls and text messages. Yeah. We had contact um, throughout the process um, leading up to our IVF transfer probably like once a week or once every, yeah, a phone call once a week and then a few text messages. Um, and then after that point, it kind of like really started becoming a daily thing and yeah, text messages were pretty much, yeah. Yeah, it's quite, both Nicole and Jane, I guess part of the personalities. When we came into this, they, they were very clear, I guess, with, um, with what they were hoping to get out of the experience. And, you know, they, they've both done this altruistic thing to help, to first and foremost, to help people and to help us in particular um, have a family. But at the same time, you know, they, they wanted to have a certain experience out of it. And I mean, at the very beginning, Nicole said a few times, like she felt selfish for for being a surrogate because she was doing it for a certain reason but for us that was that was a godsend because we we knew exactly what she wanted out of the experience it helped us be able to support her and help her in having that experience um so it was pretty great but at the same time she she kind of she said right off the bat you know she's like i think she said i've got a wife i'm not looking for two husbands um, so they were quite, I guess, kind of self-sufficient in themselves. They had each other as well. A lot of the time when we'd kind of check in and stuff, you know, it wouldn't just be friendly chit chat. And then there'd be a little bit of, particularly during the pregnancy, she'd just be like, oh, your son kept me up all night last night, or your son made me throw up on the way to work three times today. And then we'd just chat like friends, really. Um, 
and that happened a lot. She was <laughs> yeah. very sick through the first trimester. Yeah. And second. Threw, threw up a lot. Yeah. And third. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, wow. I, I like what you were telling me there about her having specific ideas about what she wanted from the experience. And like you say, it probably does sound good for It's you know, good for intended parents to know that because whilst we talk about it being altruistic, there are surrogates that have needs and they have desires for why they're surrogates and they need those needs met, I guess. I guess they want to feel fulfilled for what they've done. Did you have specific ideas of what you needed to do then to make sure that she did get that um, that reward that she was looking for? Yeah, it did. It helped shape the way we approached um, the support we gave quite a lot uh, because they were so clear about it. Um, I think, you know, sort of jumping back to our kind of false start when when I kind of spoke about you know, there was logistical things that kind of coincided with a few other things. I think that was a big part of of why that didn't really work because it, it, there were, I guess, specific um, things that, that our, our kind of first surrogate quite clearly wanted to get out of the experience herself. Uh, and I'm, maybe from a kind of fear of communicating them or not really, she was quite new to the process as well. So it wasn't particularly clear um, to us in the beginning exactly what what that looked like. And as we kind of started learning a little bit more, it was something that we weren't particularly comfortable with. Um, so having it kind of laid out on the table right from the get-go, like I think Jen said before, Nicole and Jane are both very tell-it-like-it-is people. So they were just kind of like, here's the deal we want to help you have a family, but also this is part and parcel of what we would love to get out of the experience. Um, yeah, it was amazing because it just, it just meant we could go, okay, you know, some of the things that we thought that we would do before we'd, we'd met Nicole and Jane in terms of support, they weren't remotely interested in. They didn't, they didn't need certain areas of kind of emotional support and things um, but they needed it in a specific way in another area so we could kind of navigate that quite well and and navigate it with a, a kind of I guess a shared understanding between all four of us um, so it was discussed really openly and clearly and yeah it just it, it worked out really well I mean it felt like we couldn't do enough for Nicole and Jane through the pregnancy <laughs> yeah yeah, it, you do kind of feel a little bit powerless in that position because, you know, you're not doing any of the heavy lifting. Um, and, I mean, Nicole didn't have the smoothest pregnancy. Um, she felt crummy a lot of the time. And, you know, there's not anything we could really do to remedy that. So, yeah, I think the friendship part is really was really important to us and them um, throughout the pregnancy to make sure that, like, that was yeah I think that really helps Nicole um I want to go back a little bit when did you start creating embryos with your egg donor was that before PRP or after PRP approval that was before um it's about a year before yeah when was that I think around July-ish so we we did we ended up doing two rounds so um going through that process with, with my best friend was quite interesting as well. Cause that's, that's a process in and itself. Um, and we ended up having to do 
uh, two cycles. So the first cycle didn't didn't get um, uh, a great result in terms of uh, the the amount of eggs than the ratio of uh, embryos that were created. Um, and then so we kind of waited a few months and then went through a second cycle with Steph and got a phenomenally great result um, from that second cycle. Um, so that was, that's kind of, I guess, an interesting juxtaposition in terms of doing something like that with someone who's quite close with us and who we've known. Uh, she's kind of been my best friend for over a decade. And um, going through that process with her uh, was really rewarding as well, but had some tricky elements to it in terms of navigating a sort of best friendship at the same time as navigating a kind of donor situation. Um, but again, you know. And, and Steph uh, felt a lot of responsibility with uh, um, the only, only being able to have, um, only giving us one embryo at the first um, pickup. And yeah, it, it, that was a hard thing. Um, and she had a lot of anxiety going into the second one, which, you know, afterwards we had a pretty good result, which we're so thankful for. But, um, and Elio was actually from the second. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So that definitely added a layer. It's a big, it's a big burden to place on a friend. Um, you know, she changed her life quite dramatically for almost a year, really, in terms of, you know, she um, quit smoking and changed lifestyle things and then had medication. Uh, the, the hormones and things she reacted to quite strongly um, and needed time off work and was quite kind of sick from them and struggled quite a bit with them. Um, so kind of supporting her through that and then watching her kind of, you know, she felt guilt about results and I felt guilt about, you know, putting my friend through the, the trauma that she kind of went through. And, um, but again, I think, you know, I've got a really open, honest relationship with her and always have. And we spoke about everything uh, pretty much as it happened and, you know, got through it all together. And, and like, we, like I said before, seeing her be part of Elio's life now is just wonderful. Yeah, it's great. That's so lovely. So then jumping forward, how many embryo transfers did you need to go through to achieve Elio? We were really lucky. It worked first try for us. Oh, amazing. So then yeah. poor Nicole had this really rough pregnancy, but everything went well. So tell us, tell us about the third trimester and then the birth. Yeah, so Nicole, she had, um, she, she had quite high blood pressure, which is something she suffered with with her first pregnancy as well when she had her own, when uh, she had her daughter. So we kind of were expecting that that might be an issue, particularly around the third trimester. So she had a, a, had a bit of high blood pressure, um, but it was kind of being monitored and, and she kind of had some rest from work towards the end of the third trimester. And, was kind of, you know, unhappily lugging around this this little guy in her tummy, <laughs> but doing really well. And we were kind of working at going up to Queensland, probably about, a, I think it was about a week and a half, two weeks before um, when he was due to arrive, uh, just to be able to be there a bit more. We've been going up and back um, for appointments and for visits and things quite a bit 
throughout the pregnancy, but sort of being there sort of full time for the few weeks at the end of the pregnancy, just to help out where we could and just to be around Nicole. And, so at that point we had a scheduled induction date. So we were working around that. Yeah. And then I think because of, because of the blood pressure, the, um, the, the doctors that we were seeing up at the Royal Women's in, in Brisbane, they were kind of keeping an eye on things. And then I think it was, we were due to fly up. I think I was going to go up a bit earlier. I think I was going up on the Monday or Tuesday of the following week. And then Jem was going to come at the end of the week just because he had some work on. But I just, I was at work on the Friday, which was my last day at work. Um, and I remember I've had a lot of tears at work over the past sort of year. Um, but I just, I remember my phone ringing and Jem being like, don't get too excited, but Nicole's in the hospital. And I was just like, oh my God, and of course got too excited and, and freaked out a bit, but she was in observation, I think, overnight. So we just changed our flights and went up first thing the next day. Um, so by the time we got up to Brisbane on the Saturday, I think she'd been discharged and was at home, but then had to go back on the Monday just for a quick check. So we went to the hospital with her on Monday morning just for the checkup and they put her in observation for a little while. Uh, and then felt like forever. <laughs> well, it kind of, it was the whole day really. And then they were like, Oh, your blood pressure is still a bit high. We'll keep monitoring it. So we basically just sat around the hospital all day on Monday. Um, you know, just chatting and reading magazines and um, trying to make Nicole as comfortable as possible. And then by about seven o'clock, they were just like, why don't we just do this here tonight now? And we were like, oh, okay. And they kind of walked Nicole through the induction methods and it kind of involved, um, what was it called? A Cook's catheter and multiple hours of waiting and things. And we kind of got ushered to a birth suite and the midwife was just like, you could do that or I could just break your waters right now. We can get this going. What do you, what do you want to Nicole? And Nicole's like, do it as quickly as you can. Just do it. So we were just like, oh shit, this is happening. Okay. And then. It was very fast. Yeah. From the time they sort of broke Nicole's waters and to the time. And then he was born at what, 5.30 the next day. So. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, what was the birth like, being two dads meeting your son through surrogacy? Well, the whole birthing experience was so surreal. Um, it was such a calm room, which uh, Nicole had an epidural in, so I think, you know, that contributes to it. But it was just this... Uh, it was so serene. Sean and I were instructed by the midwife to have a lie down because it was the last one we were going to have for a while. <laughs> we, we all actually had naps. So at about 11 o'clock at night, they'd broken Nicole's waters and her epidural was in and we were all kind of excitedly kind of buzzing around. And the, and the midwife was just like to Gemini and to Jane, Nicole's wife. She was just like, you three lay down. She needs to rest you three have a nap. So we kind of laid on the floor in the, in the birthing suite. She got us a little mat to lay on and some blankets and things. And um, I don't think I fell asleep, but I, we kind of like zoned out and napped for a while. And then before we knew it, the midwife just kind of was like, okay, it's time to get up. It's happening. Wow. And I'd kind of, 
I've been the birth support to um, a very close friend of mine. She's got three kids and uh, I was at the birth for her second child and Jen nearly made it for the third one. Um, but I'd kind of, and I was there for my sister's uh, birth when she had my niece as well, actually, um, in hospital. And so I was kind of like, okay, if it's just kicking into gear now, like we've got, like there's a couple of hours ahead of us here if, if it's all just kind of ramping up. And then it felt like well, it was only about 15 minutes and then it was like escalating and escalating. And I was like, wait, no, we're very far into labor now. And Nicole's just kind of waking up and we've all woken up and then it's happening. And so that last little period um, went very quickly. And I think we kind of all got into position, I guess. So we we'd kind of chatted about it before, obviously. And, one of the things that we we wanted for Jane, Nicole's wife, um, was for Jane to be able to cut the umbilical cord, uh, and just and yeah, she was just wrapped at the thought of being able to do that, and it was something that we thought we could give to her as a sort of thank you for for her looking after Nicole for all of this time and her being such an amazing support for us. Um, so she was kind of down there ready, and and Jem was down that end as well, and I was kind of up with Nicole's head. Um, and then, yeah, before we knew it, he, there was only about four or five pushes. Uh, and then he was out on Nicole's tummy for, for a couple of minutes, um, while the, the cord stopped pulsing. Uh, and then they, they passed him to me for, for a bit of skin to skin. And my, the first thought, as soon as he got put on my chest, I could feel this like hot liquid kind of running down my, my stomach and I had my shirt off. And just in my head, I was like, oh, my God, they forgot to clamp the cord. He's bleeding all over me. <laughs> and I, like, grabbed the midwife and I'm like, I think he's, he's bleeding all over me. And as soon as the words left my mouth, I was like, wait, he's not bleeding, is he? And she's like, no, maybe he just bleeding all over you. And I was like, great. So my first experience was him just peeing all over me. And I was just like, oh, he's marking his territory. Great. <laughs> Welcome to <Awesome>. parenthood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you, that's the first of many, many times he's peed on me now. He actually peed on you tonight. He did. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. So, that's, that's amazing. I love a good birth story. So how was it in those, uh, those first few weeks after the birth? You were still up in Queensland. How long did you stay? It was for three weeks. Um, yeah, three weeks after the birth. Or four yeah. weeks. Four, yeah, it ended up being about just over a month, I think. Um, <laughs> It was, it was really good. Um, we were finding our feet. Uh, Nicole and Jane were close by, which was really good. And both Sean and I have family out there. So um, it was really important for us to spend as much time for, with Nicole and Jane. Um, we actually got discharged, like, just, I think it was six, five and a half hours after he was born. They were kind of like, okay, well, you can go if you want. And we were like, oh, all right. So... We kind of got back to the Airbnb because it wasn't even our house. And then we were like, holy shit, we've got this little, this little guy now. <laughs> After that, the night that we've just had and a few days before that, kind of rushing up from Melbourne. And Nicole was still in hospital, so she stayed overnight. And we kind of went home with Elio and we're just like, well, what? not really what do we do? Because I think we both quite naturally kind of fell into it pretty easily. But it was just such a like surreal shock to go from you know 
just the two of us to then being like our little guys here and it's it's all all systems go all happening and and i think a lot of parents can probably say this about the first few days but we didn't sleep at all we just stared at elio the whole time (laughs) and we were like oh we don't need to sleep what are people talking about (laughs) yeah i think day four we just like both died. <laughs> it was it, it all hit. <laughs> yeah. But we we stayed quite close to where Nicole and Jane lived, so we were kind of. It was good, I think, to be able to have that time to kind of have a lot of time together, but also to start kind of tapering it off a little bit. So in that first week, we were sort of over at their house every day and coming for visits, and and then you know by the second week we. Nicole and Jane would kind of say, oh, you know, don't come today, but come tomorrow. And then sort of by the last day, we'd spread the visits out a little bit. And I think that that helped all four of us kind of ease into that transition. Um, Hmm. I think it was also, it was great to be able to be around them selfishly, I think, from, from my perspective anyway, just to be around them, to be able to be close to them and to kind of you know, relive the birth and be able to talk about the experience and sit in that experience with them as well. It wasn't, it wasn't very removed. I loved kind of being able to, to have those weeks up there with them. They were very, um, very supportive of each other during the birth. And when we were sitting on the side, um, or sleeping, we'd look up every now and then and, Jane would just be like stroking Nicole's hair and you could see how tight they were. And it was just so beautiful because you could hear Elio's heartbeat on the monitor and it just was so, it just felt like a little, a little bubble that we were in. And so talking about that after it had been born and revisiting it was such a lovely thing. The midwife that we had at, Royal Women's as well was this amazing, like tall. I think she was maybe German or lived in Germany for a while or something, but like had a, a short cropped hair that was bleach blonde. And after about an hour or two, I was like, oh, she's queer as well. And so when Elio was born, I was kind of like, he's been born into this room full of queers, which I just <laughs> loved. You know, us two and Nicole and Jane and this queer midwife. I was just like, that's the best, the best sort of entry into a rainbow family you could get. Yes. That's right. So what's the motherhood been like for the last four months? Apart from the fact that I hear he's sleeping through the night, which I'm not impressed about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've been very lucky with the sleep, I think, for the past sort of month and a half. He's he's been very kind to us, which is great. Um, There's been adjustments. It was kind of the first few weeks you kind of go, oh, I think we were just saying before, like, this is pretty easy. We could have like seven of these and, and be fine. And then there's that little change. I think it was around the two or three week mark and it kind of ramped up a bit. And we're like, Oh, right. This is, he was, he was still in the womb those first few weeks and we didn't know what hit us. Um, but Jem, so Jem's back at work. He went back to work what, about a month or a few weeks after we got back from Queensland. Um, and I think that was a bit of an adjustment period for me being the stay-at-home dad. Um, I think just going from, you know, I'm 38, so I've got 38 years of living my life as a, for just me, basically. Um, 
and I have my own sort of set of ways and of doing things. And I think sort of working, uh, working around a baby instead of working the baby around me took a couple of days of kind of meltdowns, both Elio's and mine, of then just getting to that point of going, oh, right, this is, this is what parenthood is now and just letting go of a lot of things. So I found it quite cathartic to be able to do that. Um, it's also, it's been a, it's been awesome. We've had so much fun with Elio, but at the same time, it's, it's really, I think it's kind of challenged both of us to uh, see each other in different ways and reestablish, I guess, our relationship, how we relate to each other. And I think there's an amazing thing about being in a same sex relationship with having a child um, is that one of the good things is that we don't have roles that are already pre-assigned to us from society. And so we get to kind of like make the rules up as we go. Um, and not to say that, you know, people in hetero relationships don't go against those trends. But I, I think you're right though. My, my experience is that because there's no set gender roles, gay dads raising babies probably have the sort of the best of best of both worlds because neither of you is needing to get up and breastfeed, which means both of you have to get up and feed the baby. Um, which <laughs> yeah, means yeah. both also can take shifts, whereas breastfeeding mums don't get that opportunity. So, yep, all hail gay dads, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> There's been a few times where one or the other has tried to bribe each other in doing the night shift or... <laughs> I think I flat out refused once or twice. I was like, I just need to sleep. You have to do it. <laughs> well, I mean, Sean pulled his back out as well. Um, yeah. A couple of months when, yeah, Elio was about two or three months and I needed to take some time off work. And I basically did all the night feeds for um, a week just because yeah. he, he wasn't able to do it. Um, and, you know, if we're breastfeeding, I yeah. guess... I guess you could pump, but <laughs> you know, bottles and there's yeah. you know logistics that are involved that we just didn't yeah need to consider. So yeah, so looking back on your surrogacy journey, what advice would you have for intended parents that are sort of starting out? What what would you say about what are the best things and the worst things going for surrogacy? Um. Mine would probably be around, I guess, don't be afraid to do it your way. Sure. I think there's, you know, you can, you kind of, it's very hard as an intended parent not to kind of focus on the outcome, being a child at the end of, end of the process. And I think don't be afraid to kind of make sure you're going through this process in the way that you, you need and want to go through it. Um, it may end up taking a bit longer, but it, it will happen. Like you, you will find someone that you kind of can, can balance with and mesh with. And I think that's been really important to us both is to, is to go through this um, with, the, with the sort of, the, the process being as strong or as is, is important as the outcome as well. Um, and, and to do it in a way that we are comfortable and happy and 
we got a lot out of as well. Um, yeah, I think being comfortable, you really need to be comfortable with everything to lock, lock that down tight. Um, I would also say for intended parents, it would be amazing if you could find other intended parents that are going through the same things at a similar time or if not ahead of you. We had um, some friends that had just paved the way for us, I guess. They've gone, gone through the same clinic. They um, had gone through PRP like a few months before, the year before. And it was just invaluable having their advice um, for pretty much every step of the way. And they were really willing to give it um, and so generous with their time. So, and we're really good friends now. So, yeah. Big, I think big shout out to Mike and Glenn. Episode 10 of the podcast, possibly. <laughs> they've been our little surrogacy guardian angels. I think they've, they've been amazing. That's lovely. I think that's been, that's and their surrogate, Kate, too. She's, that's true, she's yeah. been a massive support to us. And mm. yeah, it's great having that friendship with them all as a team. I think that sort of that little community that, that exists around surrogacy in Australia is just really, really amazing and so valuable um, to the process. And I think sort of making friends with as many people as you can. Um, and then on the flip side as well, I think for me, in terms of advice, I think keep in mind that how people, how other people have gone about surrogacy or other people's process that, that are kind of highlighted through the through that community just because other people have done it a certain way doesn't necessarily mean that that way is going to be right for you and that can be quite tricky as well because there, there can be quite a lot of talk of you know um gold star ways of doing things or the right ways of doing things or you know deal breakers and that kind of thing try not to get too caught up in that i'd probably say because i think i don't think you can standardize something like surrogacy like it's it's such a human connection and it's such a human process that trying to standardize that just yeah i don't i don't think it can be done so i i was probably a little bit daunted by that to begin with it's not um i don't it takes me a while to to connect with people and I was worried about struggling with that and connecting with people in, in the way that's kind of held up as the way to do it. Uh, and I think that's been one of the beautiful things about going through this with Nicole and Jane. As soon as we met them, that all just dissolved away and we just mm -hmm. focused on our relationship. And, and, and that was, that was what, what worked for us. So It's also really hard to put yourself out there in an online forum so if you can take it offline and you can forge those connections with people in your own communities then that's been really helpful for us um yeah it's uh, i found it really hard to engage with comments and stuff online just because i'd worry and go over it a thousand times and make sure that i'm saying the right thing just because i didn't want to be um, have my words misconstrued or just come across in the wrong way. Um, but then making those friendships in the actual flesh was, you know, a completely different experience. 
Yeah. And they were really valuable relationships. So, yeah. And we've, we've kind of uh, made friends with, we actually met not particularly through the community, but at her antenatal class for uh, Rainbow Families. But we, we've kind of made friends with three other sets of gay dads who were all going through surrogacy at the same time and, and all in very different ways. Two were going through the States, one through Canada, and we were the only ones that were doing a sort of local journey, but we've all had little boys actually, so four boys, it's a bit of a sausage fest. <laughs> um, but we've had, you know, our little boys all within three months of each other. So we've got a little gay dads gang that has been phenomenally helpful um, just to bond with other people that have gone through through surrogacy as well. And I think that'll be great for, for the kids as they get older as well, to have this little circle of friends who kind of their families were created in similar ways and, and look similar to Elio's family. So I think that's, yeah, there's a lot of kinship that's there that's really valuable that comes out of the community. Thank you for listening to the Australian Surrogacy podcast. If you would like to find out more information about surrogacy, you can have a look at my website at sarahjefford.com. You can also find me on Facebook and on Instagram, and you can listen to more podcasts on the website or on Apple Podcasts.